This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Marissa. And we are talking about Solar Lottery by Philip K. Dick, his first published novel. And uh, does this come out the year after uh, The Demolished Man? Or is that... This comes my... out in 1955. Right. Wasn't Demolished Man 54? That's a good I think point. it was. But I was reading about this book, and it said that it was... No, uh, Demolished Man is 52, 53. Okay. So... so and Demolished yeah, Man, is it, that's a novella, right? Or is it a... Uh, it's a full-size novel. Oh, is it? It's okay. probably a little longer than this. Uh, maybe not. Maybe it's about the same. Um, well, you guys have any idea why I'm asking this? Nope. The telepathy? The telepathy, yeah, but also it's got the sidecar in it, just like this does. Um, and it's got a solar system-based uh, sort of galactic... No, not galactic emperor. Solar system empire. Solar system empire. Um, and the main character is trying to uh, uh, murder someone without getting caught, and he uses uh, special techniques to defeat the telepaths. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, it's got a sort of a, a lot of raw power. Um, it's quite this book is quite different despite all the similarities, but I I, I just found it quite striking. Um, I don't know. I don't know that you can just say, hey, uh, Mr. Philip Kiddick, you're plagiarizing. I, I don't think that works at all because um, it's distinct enough uh, in many ways. But I just think it's interesting that they, if you have tele- telepaths, you sort of have to gr- get them into a, a guild so that you can control them. Mm-hmm. This seems to be sort of a logical consequence of having... A bunch of telepaths running around. That's a very 50s sort of uh, idea that telepaths have to be regulated, controlled. I mean, look at Dune. Mm-hmm. The Spacing Guild and the Bene Gesserit are all very much hierarchical ways of controlling people with special powers. So I yeah. think it's something that's just in the air in science fiction at the time. Did Dick read this novel? Did he read The Demolishment? I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, given he had a couple of years, but... I mean, he, his solutions to how to defeat telepaths in Solar are very different than the Demolish Man. Yeah, I, I, the other thing is, is you know, it, this is not really... Is There's so many ideas going on in this book that it's really hard to tell what the hell the book's about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, I, I listened to it w- one time, and then I, I was like, I am not getting this book. <laughs> not getting this book. And then... By the by, by the end, I was like, you know, maybe I am getting this book, and so I restarted it. And um, in listening to it through it to the second time, um, I think I think the problem is is it's just not as well written as it could be if he was a more polished writer, like you know <laughs> he is later. Yeah, so I had the same problem. Been a better book. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I I almost feel like he wrote most of the novel, realized he didn't have enough, and then threw in other stuff like, for example, the John Preston subplot, which really doesn't go anywhere, just to just to make word count and get everything yeah. filled up. 
because that mm-hmm. that almost feels like that's and it's a very Dickian sort of thing. That feels like a short story that he just inserted into this novel. It's funny though. There's nothing in here that isn't Philip K. Dick, except uh, sort of the way it's executed. I I would say you know it's like um, that Prester uh, John. I, I John I, Prester. I, yeah. I keep saying it wrong because that's what I'm. You know, that's what he's referring to. It's got to be right. Prester, Prester John. John. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Marissa, you know about Prester John? No. So Prester John is a, this is really cool. In the, in the Middle Ages, they had fan fiction and, uh, sort of superheroes, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, and Prester John is this. He's a, he's a king of a faraway land that is Christian. And he has all sorts of wonderful animals in his kingdom. And he's like really cool. Everybody writes about him. And there's like, you know, sort of, Fake no, I don't know. Fake letters about him huh. uh, circulating, and <laughs> and it's like this is what the intellectuals in the Middle Ages were were doing is like trading these, wow. these <laughs> fan fictions about this Christian king somewhere in a faraway land. For a while, they thought he was in Asia, and then no, oh, he's in Ethiopia. Marco Polo's, you know, he's going to meet him. Um, and in review, in reviewing this book, I found. Um, and in finding reviews for this book, I found right in the Wikipedia entry, there's one for, uh, by Silverberg, who, uh, s- seems to think it, it point at the ending points to the cynicism of later Dick or something like that. But then in reading about Prester John, um, uh, Mr. Silverberg is like a huge, uh, scholar on Prester John, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting. Hmm. Um, so, even though it is, yeah, sort of a weird subplot that doesn't really attach properly to the rest of the book, it's it, it actually fits with sort of a lot of later Philip K. Dick novels where they they have this sort of prophet um, out out in outer space and yeah. everybody's going on that quest and on a quest to try to find them. But. Uh, what, what was the most interesting thing in this book? I mean, there's so many interesting sort of things going on. What was the most interesting thing in it for you, Paul? The telepaths defending, uh, the quiz master. The, the, the whole, okay, we'll use a robot, but we'll have him controlled by different people and keep switching his personalities as a way of defeating the, the espers that are guarding the quiz master. I, it's not very Dickian to have such, What's the word I'm looking for? Action sequences, but it's it was fascinating how he's that that sort of like chess game between uh, Varric and the and the quizmaster Varric trying to use this this construct. I'm not even entirely certain that it's even was legal under the rules of his weird society. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you're supposed to have an assassin, assassin <clears throat> supposed to go after the quizmaster. The rules will say anything about okay, let's make a robot and keep switching the people in it because in a sense you're having more than one assassin. So I think. I think I think this wouldn't even be allowed under the rule, rules of this odd world, but just the whole the, the whole attempts of uh, that uh, that construct to get to the quizmaster was the most interesting thing of the book for me. me uh, all the way to all the way to the conclusion on Mars. I mean, it kind of trails off at towards the after uh, after that initial attempt fails, but that the whole working out of the of of the of the thing going th- going through uh, Batavia trying to get to the quizmaster, I really like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, that thread, I mean, it, it's actually pretty it's pretty clever. 
um, as well. I, I also think it's interesting, yeah, because it is very sort of action-oriented, and that's the cover, too, right? That that scene where he's on, where the android's on Mars. Um, uh, sorry, on the moon, you're right. And uh, they're trying to defeat the android. Um, that, you know, he picks up a rock, he's going to throw it at it. I I look looking at the cover it it seems it feels to me like they you know Ace I'm I'm pretty sure this is not what happened but I know that a lot of books were published this way Ace Books comes to you know its writers and say okay guys here here's what we want uh we've got this cover who can do a book <laughs> <laughs> right okay and looking at it you know there's a guy in a spacesuit holding a rock over his head and then there's a guy not in a spacesuit ready to you know dodge out of the way and they're both on the moon. So how do you explain the guy not in the space? Sort of the, the tw- <laughs> and, and that covers so it's and versus the actual plot of the story that covers so subversive because you think the guy getting thrown at is the protagonist and he's not. Right. No, <laughs> he's the enemy. You're trying to try. But he's stop. also not a person, right? right. He's, I love yeah. that. That's a very dick thing to do. I like that he's an interplanetary ship as well. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's so weird. Uh, how, how much Doctor Who have you seen, Marissa? I know Jesse hasn't seen a lot. Oh, uh, not for years. I only okay. watched that when I was a kid. There's this, in, in in the new series. There's a in one of the seasons. There's a robot. There's a robot spaceship thing that looks like the Doctor that he winds up getting miniaturized in and operating. And as I was, re- I was listening to Solar, I was thinking that okay, that's where they stole this from. Oh, really? Because because at one point, yeah, the, the Doctor's inside the thing, and he, okay, spoilers for Doctor Who fans, he he, he manages to fake his own death because the robot gets destroyed. Well, the robot double of him that he's been controlling gets destroyed. It's it, hmm. it, it, it I mean, it's not mind control of the robot. He's physically miniaturized inside the robot, but it kind of reminded me when I was listening to Solari, like, hey, this is kind of like Lake, Sil- Lake, Lake Silencio's <laughs> subplot in Doctor Who. It's neat. Yeah. Uh, it's, I, I think it's, it's interesting because it's got the androids concept right in it, right? This book, which is, you know, so well done in, in a later book. Um, it's got, it's got, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I'll, I'm going to ask Marissa. What what was your favorite? Because uh, there's so many things going on in here. What was your? Is it? Is that for you the same thing? Um, interesting part, or is there something? Yeah, like? I really like that. But I also I really like the culture as well. Like the whole the whole idea that like people get status through the lottery. Yeah. Like I kind of wanted to see more of that. It's it's. Uh, there's so much going on in this book, so, this, so that every time you think, "Oh, this is going to be interesting to explore," some new concept yeah, comes up. Yeah, he goes off and, in a different direction. Says, okay, we're off in this direction <laughs> for a while, and then that goes for a while, and then surprising, there's not that uh, there's not as much info dumping as you would sort of think there would need to be. Uh-huh. Um, he's pretty good at sort of exp- uh, explaining it, but on the other hand, um, like the mini max thing that they're talk constantly talking about, I. I was like, okay, this is some part of game theory that they're talking about. But I, I agree that the culture is really interesting. And um, the details that come out in the culture, uh, I think, are also explored in other books. But in this one, I, I, I think if he had like gone back, you know, in 20 years after this was written and just sort of set 
another story in that culture, that would have been a much more interesting book. Oh, uh, yeah. I wish he because had. there's so much going on. I, I mean, the the loyalty oath thing that starts the book off, where they're sort of in a feudal system that's also like a... It's like a... Corporate feudalism. Yeah, it's corporate feudalism, but yeah. it's, also, it's also got... Um, I mean, it's got a surplus, right? The problem with society is there's too much product, right? And so... Oh, that's people, right. It says at the start they're burning... They're just burning products or something? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Right. So the the efficiency of of product being produced is too great. So they have to start burning things. And, I mean, we are kind of in this situation if you think of, uh, you know, how cheap things from China are. Yeah. China is absolutely, totally uh, cheap as dirt. The only reason it wouldn't be is because you're not getting it from the source, right? You're getting it from some sort of filtered uh, third party. Yeah, it didn't really feel too far off. Like, even the culture, okay, we don't have a lottery, but even the the fealty to corporations. And Absolutely. <laughs> it I mean, that's very Japanese. Away. And um, there's, uh, there's a few other things in... Uh, one of the things that I like that is picked up in other novels of his and uh, also in the first, uh, and you know, maybe even the, the remake of Total Recall is the robot taxis that... Johnny yeah. Cab! Right, can't distinguish between male and female. And oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> I mean, I think this is actually, uh, this is a really interesting insight because we have trouble sometimes distinguishing between male and female, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes, you know, it's quite obvious, which, you know, you've got a big hairy guy with a bald head, you know, beard on his face, uh, giant hands, right? Okay, that's a guy, right? Um, and then sometimes you're walking behind somebody and they've got really long hair and you, you say, is that a guy? Is that a girl? Right? We, we have sometimes trouble distinguishing, mm-hmm. but imagine how difficult it will be for robots who have no, uh, you know, genetics built into them uh, to determine sexual characteristics. Mm-hmm. That's going to be incredibly difficult. So, you know, the solution here is very elegant. I think, and that's just like one tiny little thing that he's put in. You know, robots will say, uh, uh, sir or madam, whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. welcome to my cab, right? And then they need to get paid <laughs> at the end of the service. Yeah, the world is amazing. Actually, because you've read uh, so many of his short stories, has was he playing with this world in any short stories before this? I'm pretty sure not. I, well, I think not. Well, wow. well there, there, there's some hints of a future similar to the golden man in that we've had a nuclear war i think that's where the teeps have come from because because we see the ruins of london at one point in this novel nuclear war comes up in his stuff all the time right even some of the novels we've done post post uh nuclear war we have an indonesian empire now i think that's really cool i mean i don't know why he said it in batavia but what what a cool idea i mean it's just i'll pick some place on the map But also, like, you know, this is right after World War II. Uh, this, America's at the height of its power, and he sets it, you know, 250 years or what is it, 300 years in the future. And it's, yeah, okay. <laughs> no mention of the United States at all, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Isn't that unusual? I mean, almost everything of his. This is such an ambitious book. 
it's it's just not it's it's so different from everything else he's written in the sense that it's it's got so much ambition and yet it because of that i think it it just is it's not as great a book as it could be if it was done by a guy with a little more uh, experience at writing novels yeah it definitely gets better on the rereads though like but i find that with it a lot does. of his stuff that yeah, this is, I mean, I think in the second time I was appreciating sort of not trying to follow what the hell's going on, but trying to just listen to, listen for those little bits. Like, I love the fact, uh, w- one of the things I thought was really cool is everybody's obsessed with, uh, with, uh, luck and charms. Oh, right? yeah, that's yeah. awesome. It's a very Philip K. Dick thing to do is like, okay, his wife gives him a good luck charm and he says, this is complete bullshit. But on the other hand, yeah, it's a metaphor for this whole society, which I mean, at, at the end, they start talking and deconstructing the whole society about about the lottery and how it's uh, stifling progress. But it does make the make the world much more oriented towards chance and fortune and just how random, yeah, random a- coincidence. That's that's a very. Man high castle, yeah. Yeah, but that's not the intended effect, right? The intent, I think the intended effect, it, it, and it's not fully justified by explaining, you know, that they've got too much, too many goods. It, and he doesn't say that that's why it happened. What he says is that, uh, it just turned into that, right? That it, it started off with the quiz master giving away, uh, giving away prizes to try and mm-hmm. get rid of them because there's too many it's, it's kind of like those old game shows, you know, where you go on the, they're probably still around, the price is right, where you get, go on the show and everybody gets a prize even when they lose. And then uh, when you, you're also on that game show, you get like uh, a new car or a dream vacation or whatever it is. And the purpose of that is to sell more goods uh, by people seeing those things and wanting to buy them. So it increases supply, uh, demand for supply, right? Mm-hmm. But also, if you have too much supply and you don't want to burn all those goods, um, it's sort of a way of pacifying the population um, by giving out the... The thing is, is this, the role of Quizmaster is not fully explicated in the book, other than he he get, does the quiz, which apparently can give you something, but what is it that it gives you exactly? Um, yeah, what are the sort of government capabilities that he have besides that and having this army of teeps around. Yeah, it's it's not clear what good being the quizmaster really is and why why uh why people strive for it and especially once you get knocked out trying to assassinate your predecessor to get back in that position. Yeah, that's true. It's it's very uh, this is why we need to be, you know, have a story set in this world that is not about Yeah. Oh, well, maybe even if it is about that, it, it has to be sort of slow, uh, slowed down a bit so that we can mm-hmm. uh, linger through the the subways and such. But uh, what uh, did? Yeah, the world was so interesting. Like, what did you guys think of uh, when he visits his friends and they've got this? Well, first of all, they're eating. No, they're not eating algae, but it seems to be that everyone else oh, eats yeah. algae protein or. Um, it grows. It grows on the bathroom pipe. Yeah, and yeah. then they have their TV. They have one channel which is like literal for regular people, I think, and then yeah. one channel that's like weird patterns. I love it. That's so strange. 
I, I, it's like, here's the metaphorical challenge. Yeah. Here's the literal challenge. <laughs> All the people who, uh, who don't get metaphor, don't stay away yeah. from Channel M. That was such right. an interesting chapter. Absolutely. He's got, he's got so much going on. I, I love when he goes to, uh, who's the guy um, at the beginning? What's his name? Um, Ted Bentley, is that him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so he 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 loses his job. He's really happy, which is fun. And then um, he goes to Batavia trying to get a job, and he he's so nervous about getting this new job because he can only apply once. He he calls up the bed girl agency. Oh yeah, his favorite, his favorite bed girl agency. And I I thought oh, it's like a McDonald's of prostitution sort of or <laughs> agency sort of thing. Um, but when he, he, you know, beds the bed girl, um, she, she knows him. It's like he's been there before. And, and then of course we find out that he has been there before. Um, but I just thought, and then she's got, you know, gives him the extra charm with what was it? Virgin's milk, which I thought was hilarious. (laughs) Virgin's milk and boiled owl spit or something <laughs> all these really weird uh luck luck charms made from rare rare useless things yeah. and didn't uh, did i read it right oh, that yeah. the bed girls are also kind of like a psychological they're kind of like a psychologist as well or they're sort of helping yeah them? well i thought that i it was either that or it was a joke yeah I mean, yeah <laughs> it said uh, all of his psychological problems were solved <laughs> <laughs> and at least for you know for the day or whatever. And it's like, yeah, yeah, we got your good joke. There. And I love that he has all the girls in this book are walking around bare-breasted as well. This is... <laughs> well, it wasn't super clear that they were bare-breasted, but they were definitely, you know, you could see pretty much everything. Yeah. He mentions it a lot. There's a lot of, like, quivering breasts and... <laughs> yes. Bobbing yeah. And, 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 and here and that. And, and, and there's some infidelity and, yeah, there's some very typical... Sticky and concerns floating around here, not yeah. quite as, not quite as uh, developed as in some other novels, but uh-huh. the stories. But yeah, he, he can see some of his, uh, some of his um, interests coming to the fore here. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was just, I was just reading through this, this, this section about the charms. It's like I, I don't understand how people can get by with just one charm. Her green eyes dance. Maybe you don't get by. Maybe that's why you have bad luck. Well, the only person who doesn't have any charms is the the quizmaster, right? Because he's so lucky he got into that job. Yeah, but we realize that's not. It wasn't luck after all. Right. He's yeah. been cheating. He's been cheating all this time. I'm a- Which apparently may or may not be legal as well. Well, he's no longer. He no longer can be quizmaster. At the end, I mean, he he loses because he kills because of his little gambit there and killing people out of turn. He can't be Quizmaster again, but he's fine with that. So when when we're looking at the society and we're thinking why the Quizmaster is, you know, what's he doing and all that, uh, some of the, I mean, it's not really explained why, like the the few characters we meet, basically they're all very cynical about about their position, their society, their, you know, our main character introduces us to the story. He, he's very happy to have been released from his contract, right? He's going to 
get out of uh, private work and get into the public service where, you know, everything's going to be better. Um, because he he's upset because all of the biochemical engineering he does is burned, right? All the, all the work that he's done is thrown away. And he just is completely dissatisfied with that. And so when he goes to the the <laughs> sign on for government work, uh, they sort of warn him off, right? They say, it's not what you think. Mm-hmm. It's, but it turns out that, that, that they're waving him off for a different reason, right? I thought it was, you know, this is going to be, it, it's explained like, um, w- what makes you think you should go back to, you know, working for the Hill Corporation or whatever it is. You, it's not going to be as good as you think it is. And they're yeah. both, the the secretary lady and the uh, the I don't know the guy doesn't want to hire him. Uh, I guess they're both secretaries to the quizmaster. Um, say you know don't do this. Um, but he he signs on anyways after thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But it it feels like it there's a hint there as to what what this society is supposed to be about. Like so I don't think there's any any scarcity at all. Like, I don't think anybody is not eating any... I don't think anybody's starving. I don't think anybody lacks housing. Am I wrong about this? No, no, it feels a very... uh, There's a minimum basic level of comfort for everybody in the society. Right. So, uh, the Minimax thing, like, what he's... uh, What I think the idea behind this society is, is it's basically designed to prevent the corruption that is inherent in... In... uh, any political system or economic system by making it unfeasible for you to try to get ahead in a way that would advantage you over someone else because you can't win that way. So instead of trying to get ahead by promoting and getting promoted in your job, right? Uh, by, you know, ingratiating yourself to the boss, which is a way of cheating, right? Or deceiving someone. There's no point in doing that because, everybody's job is randomly assigned. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong in thinking that that's actually what's going on? I think that's right. And anyone anyone can win the lottery at any moment and become and be in quiz power. Master. As long as you have a P not, card. Not just quiz master. You could be like... Um, and uh, See, there, there are people who don't play, right? The people whose P cards are away... Your yeah. power cards. If you're pow- it makes me think of Powerball Lottery, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, that you've got a P card that if you've got it, your number's in the bottle, which I think is a meg, it's not a real bottle, right? It's a m- metaphor for, <laughs> for a computer random, randomized thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your number's in, and if that, if you, if, if, uh, you're trying to get ahead in life, you are playing the the, the game until you, until you take your card out and say, you know what, I'll, Instead of doing that, I'm going to sign up with a person who's particularly lucky, right? Or a corporation that's particularly lucky. And when the bottle gets rolled again, right, and that corporation does worse or better, or that person does worse or better, then you fall or rise with them. Yeah. Yep. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Have oh, okay. I, have I of you read uh, the Borges story, The Lottery in Babylon? Nope. Uh, no, but you know... Uh, because I, I just I just pulled up my te- my copy of it. Yeah, I, I'm almost certain that Dick read 
read and inculcated yeah. this. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to read the start of this to you all. Cool. Like all the men of Babylon, I have been proconsul. Like all, I have been a slave. I have known omnipotence, ignominy, imprisonment. Look here, my right hand has no index finger. Look here, though this gash through this gash in my cape, you can see on my stomach a crimson tattoo. It is the second letter, Beth. On the nights when the moon is full, the symbol gives me power over men with the mark of Gimel, but it subjects me to those with the Aleph, who, who on nights where there is no moon own obedience to those marked with the Gimel. I owe that I owe that almost monstrous variety to an institution, the lottery, which is unknown in other nations or at work in them imperfectly or secretly. I have not delved into this institution's history. I know that sages cannot agree. About its mighty purposes, I know as much as a man untutored in astrology might know about the moon. Mine is a dizzying country in which the lottery is a major element of reality. Until this day, I have thought as little about it as, as is about the conduct of the indecipherable gods or of my heart. Now far from Babylon and its beloved customs, I think with some bewilderment about the lottery, about the blasphemous conjectures that shrouded men whisper in the half-life of dawn or evening. So yeah, in in the in the Borges, it sounds like it sounds like our world. Yeah, in, in in the Borges story, the lottery starts up as something for the lower classes as a way of just like getting them ahead. But soon, eventually, everybody in this society plays it every day, and he even talks about the company that runs it at the end. Under the under the company's beneficent influence, our customs are now steeped in chance. The purchaser of a dozen. Amphorae of Damascene wine will not be surprised if one contains a talisman or a viper. The scribe who writes out a contract never fails to include some error. I myself, in this hurried statement, have misrepresented some splendor, some atrocity perhaps, to some mysterious monotony. So, yeah, I'm almost certain he read this story and said, okay, I can apply this to, a, to an interplanetary society and go with it. But, it's like, interesting. It was, I wonder what... I, I, I'm not sure that's possible. I'm, I... It just so happens that um, Borges is the Babylonian lottery or the lottery of Babylon is in the public domain. I found this out very excitedly. Um, and I know that it was published uh, at least around the time that the originally it was originally published in, in Spanish. But the first English one that I could find is 1962. Really? Yeah. So the fact that he's it's 1944 He's, in Spanish, but yeah. So, but I also don't think it was published in in you know. That's in, really I don't know how you get it. It's really creepy though, because I mean, just looking at the story, I mean, it's so. I mean, Dick's story is just like borrowing straight out. Great minds think alike. I think you know. <laughs> but uh, I, I think this is really uh, that that system that's set up in both stories is. It's very interesting because it it says why bother trying to do better at your job, right? That's the negative. But it also is like you don't get ahead just because you're pretty, right? You don't get ahead just because you're the boss's son. And you can you can say you know what I'm not I'm not playing this game, and you just sign on with somebody else who you think is lucky <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because everybody thinks luck is a real thing. And he talks a little bit about that, but I, I think it's really interesting because it's anti-corruption in a way that is kind of making it corrupt as well. Because everybody, instead of, you know, the society as a whole is completely not corrupt, but everybody is cynical about their their 
chances, and the only way of avoiding that cynicism is by being stupid in the way of, you know, thinking that you can be lucky. Yeah. Is kind of, I mean, that's a total inversion of, you know, sort of, it's not meritocracy. It's the opposite of meritocracy. It's completely random, mm-hmm. right? Which is not what you would normally think is the opposite of meritocracy, where it's, you know, it's all corruption. And, and so... Did you understand uh, how the... Sure. Sorry. No, no, go for it. Did you understand how the assassin um, part of it works? Because that was an anti-corruption yeah. um, protection as well, wasn't it? Like they're, I think that's right. But even in that, I mean, the fact that uh, Barrett's using this robot and the different operators, he's trying to... Well, he's trying to corrupt it. Yeah, yeah he's, he's trying, trying to corrupt, yeah. yeah, the anti-corruption bit to... Uh, but how, all, how did that even work? Like, how does the... The assassin was an anti. It was to stop crackpots, or I think they said, <laughs> from staying in power. Yeah, yeah, right? but, yeah. Because because they they say that the the lengths of times the quiz masters range from a few minutes to a few years, depending on how good they were in defending yeah. against uh, assassination attempts. Which kind of reminds me a little bit of the cynicism of Heinlein's Glory Road, where the Empress of uh, the 20 universes keep saying, oh, oh yeah, one of these days I'm going to get assassinated. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. Very fatalistic. She's very fatalistic mm-hmm. once once we learn about her society and her world. That, yeah, she was picked, she was picked biologically to be the empress, but she expects that someone's going to kill her off because that's the way these things always go. I don't think we should uh, get too deep into that book because it's it's a Heinlein book. Yeah, yeah. I, that, 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 I might want to do that one one day because it's a very interesting Heinlein book. Oh, I'd, but I'd I, love to be I, on that podcast. I yeah, like – it's so different. Have you read that one, Marissa? No. Laurie Road? Uh-uh. Okay, so most Heinlein is basically there's there's like a, a guy. He's probably a writer, and he he has a wife that's six years old or something oh, like that. And they're fighting against some secret society or something in outer space or, you know, or there's a young kid who's, you know, going to be a farmer and on another planet or something like that. This one is very interesting because it's set in Vietnam. It's, it's set in France, starts in France, um, where a Vietnam vet, which is very unusual for Heinlein to be so sort of contemporaneous, right? It's like, what? It's not set in the future. Um, a Vietnam vet is on vacation. He's bored. He sees a letter in the newspaper or some sort of note advertisement in the newspaper uh, for a hero, hero needed or something like that. And then he goes into another dimension, sort of another universe um, and does sort of a Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, John Carter of Mars sort of story, hmm. but it's sort of fairyland. And that is, What's so weird is that it sounds totally not like a Heinlein book, but it's still Heinlein. Because <laughs> even though that plot is there, it's very Heinlein. But it's interesting because that's a, it's, it, 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 the escaping cynicism thing, right? Escaping from, uh, if you're in the army, you know, you have to follow orders in the same way that the guys who were in the, the, you know, they're signed up for that horrible company where, yeah, they, they get paid decent money. They get to play with great, you know, equipment that costs more than anything they they could afford to get on their own. But then all their work is thrown away, mm-hmm. right? You know, you, you, in Vietnam, you you know, you go uh, 
go on patrols and kill people. And then 20 years later, you leave and nothing was achieved, right? That sense of futility, futility. And you go to the escape thing. It's funny because Heinlein was in. uh, Did you guys see a few weeks ago? I tweeted a really interesting list of writers for and against uh Science fiction writers born against the Vietnam yeah, War. Yeah, we, we yeah, you know, when you were talking about the whole politics and science fiction thing that was going around. Yeah, you t- you tweeted those lists. I had nothing to do with that. I was just oh, reading. I don't pay attention. <laughs> yeah, I don't pay attention to all that stuff you guys read about. Oh, so it's coincidence. Uh, it just yeah, I was reading an old magazine and I'm like, oh, that's a cool ad. It was um, it was actually I think International Science Fiction Magazine, which is a very obscure magazine that didn't last very long, but there was a two-page ad, and on one side of it was we, the undersigned, support our, the blah, 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 you know, war in Vietnam. And then we, the undersigned, uh, on the other side of the page, uh, don't think, blah, blah, blah. Right? They they were each phrased in such a way so that you could tell, you know, it was it was the way they would want it phrased, right? And there was a huge divide. But it sort of goes along the lines you would think it would go, right? Sort of the uh, conservative uh, science fiction guys are over on the left and the or on the right, <laughs> and the more liberal ones are over on the right, uh, left or whatever. And and yet, if you ask them twenty years later, you know, do the poll, say, was it a good idea? Um, and if they didn't have that memory of having signed on one side or the other. I think they they would have changed their mind in some way, right? But I think some wouldn't also. What's interesting is I don't know what Philip K. Dick is saying exactly with this book because it's so everywhere, but I want to know, right? I think this is, he's talking sort of, this is a response to America 1950s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Don't you think? Because he's always obsessed with the 50s. There's something, America 1950s. This is sort of, you know, you get out of the system somehow, and his conclusion seems to be that you can't get out of the system completely. You just change the system. Yeah. You're still in another cynicism. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. a different set of concerns. They talk about that somewhere in the book, don't they? They are talking about changing the rules and should you obey the rules if the system's corrupt? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's uh, when do you not obey the law? That's mm-hmm. There's that little line in there. I mean, this is very... It, it's so not full of philosophy compared to most PKD books. Yeah, there is no philosophy. I wasn't expecting the what's the courtroom drama at, toward the end. Oh, yeah. like, what the heck was that? <laughs> like, okay, we're going all going, and now we're going to have a court battle over whether or not he broke his feudal oath. Like, I'm listening. This is like this is not something I normally see in a Dick novel. Okay. <laughs> well, it, it, it sort of it follows from the society he's set up, but there's so much else going on at the same time. It's pretty hard to distinguish. So uh, I think this if this is the worst Philip K. Dick can get, um, and I don't know if that's true, I, I, I as a novel anyways, I'm not disappointed at all. But on the other hand, I would like it. I, I would like somebody to, you know, go through and sort of, Maybe Marissa, you can go through and copy edit this and and regular edit this and make it uh, just uh, I don't know. <laughs> you think you need to get a, find a co-writer to go in and fix the parts where we want to have it more expanded out. Yeah. Get a robot version of Dick to go in and fix it up. 
it's not that it's broken. It's just that it's not as good as it could be. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's just really cluttered or confusing. Cluttered. That's, yeah. that's the word. Yeah, it really needed uh, some more editing and uh, polishing. I mean, I mean, we 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 don't see the philosophy, but we see we see we see some of the ideas it, that he's going to throw. We see hints of it, right? We see hints of it here and there, everywhere. But what we don't get is a fault, sort of a follow through. Usually, he sort of, you know, if you get his later works, you know, they're they're meditations on whatever it is. That's uh, what what Rene Descartes called his philosophy, right? Meditations. Um, they're sort of me- they're thinking sort of only on one subject all the way through. And then usually at the end, the conclusion is, well, that didn't work. <laughs> but at least you get to go through it with him. Here, yeah, we've got the, you know, when is it right to break the law? And the answer is, uh, let's move on. <laughs> Rather than. <laughs> so what do we think about the Preston Society? Is this, is this a precursor to Summer's weird it kind of fits, religions and uh, weird cults? Yeah. Yeah, it kind of fits though. I think it, because they're also trying to escape their society, right? Trying but they're to, trying to physically escape it rather yeah. than escape it in fantasy or right. Trying to find the flame disc and what John Preston has found out there. And what the hell is the flame disc? Ah, it's not really even really described well. What the flame? No, it's not. It's a. It's not a planet. Oh, it's not a planet. A planet. It's, a, like it's a, a planet, but it's called a flame disc. I mean, yeah. what the hell does that mean? I have no idea. I don't know where that name comes from. A, apparently, John Prester wrote four books. One of them is called Flame Disc or the Flame Disc. Oh, really? Yeah, and his corpse is on Earth, right? Except it's not really on Earth. And then they go out to the flame disc, and they think they found him in a in a get it bottle, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's not. They think you know. Oh, he says I'm really really deaf, and my eyes are bad, and I'm really deaf. So when you talk to him, he can't hear you. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's not there. And yeah. then one of the uh, one of the characters starts screaming at him, saying, "What is two plus two equal?" <laughs> yeah, that's so good. <laughs> that was a whole other book. Like that's another whole world that oh, I wanted right. to write yeah. in. Yeah. I think that I think that is a couple other books later on, right? That they've got these sort of false prophets that have gone off into outer space, and either, either they come back, uh, or and, which like Pres- John Prester did, or they don't come back, um, and. That they go help a help a alien being on another planet bring up his sunken cathedral or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 some it's something that he found, but it's just so underwritten was what he actually actually is there because they talk about a sphere of some dull metal without features or ornaments, green crystals of frozen gas drifted and blew around them as they apprehensively apprehensively approached the sphere, and. They don't get in, but then they, but oh, there it is. Okay, so yeah, so yeah, a buoy. But what sort of planet is this? It's just never really explained. And the whole idea of Preston being just a dead recording that's just been sending this out all this time it kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, spoiler alert: the end of Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. Where you the, can't spoil that movie; it's completely. 
Okay. <laughs> okay. And I, I think... I, as soon as you start expecting anything to happen in that movie, it can't. It, it does not follow, right? Yeah. And nothing in that movie follows from the previous thing. No, it's just it more of the but, same. So, it, it, see, usually the point of a spoiler is that you know you're anticipating who the murderer is. In this movie, you cannot anticipate anything because nothing makes sense except visually. <laughs> yeah, but the, at the at the end, it turns out the force that's been causing all these problems is basically just the working out of this guy's plans and he's been dead for years because so, it was like John Preston's been dead and he's been sending out all these signals and things and yeah I, I think there is I think we can uh, keep cooking that idea a little bit and figure out what it is because um, they're, all, they're out there looking for the 10th planet um, at the beginning of the book we were told that there's 9 planets in the solar lottery right, right. so Mercury up to I guess Pluto is included in this um, and some people, I love the, the like the tiny little details here and there. One of the one of the uh, quiz masters when he came in, he fired all the uh, bed girls that were working in the in the office and sent them to work in the mines on Mars or something. Like what? How how did that happen? I thought everybody like sort of had sort of options, but apparently you have to go work on the mines on Mars. If the guy coming in doesn't like bed girls, yeah, yeah right. they have work camps and stuff. Yeah. Work camps, right? Yeah. So it's it, it, even though it should be sort of a relatively good society for non-scarcity, if not for job satisfaction, it also seems to have some random punishments here and there. Um, I'm telling you, very Borges in. Uh, yeah, there you you're right about that. But yeah, it's just like they, they talk at one point someone's off on Jupiter, and I was listening. It's like, wait, wait, did I hear that right? I, I, I mm-hmm. sent it back. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know how they live on Jupiter. They, but they yeah, that reminds me of a short story about people going through the solar system doing uh, neo-colonialism, and they talk about finding that the Great Red Spot's really a big platform. Where people are living on it. There's the flame <laughs> disc, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's a way you could live on Jupiter, but yeah. Otherwise, yeah, not so much. Or, or the, what's more, the Clifford Simak story, um, where Call Me Joe is the one you're thinking of. Yeah, well, I, it's Call Me Joe, one of the others where they basically get transformed into beings that can live on Jupiter. Yeah, him call, and his dog. Uh, you should check that story out, Marissa. It's really good if you haven't read it. What's it called? Call me, it's called Call Me Joe. Uh huh. Um, and Joe, it, it's actually kind of uh, when Avatar came out. I think I might have wrote a little thing about how uh, uh, I don't. I don't think anybody can rip anybody off, but I think that it's kind of like um, this is a cool inspiration for it because Avatar oh, has you know a guy. It's which one? Desertion's the actual name. So Call Me Joe is what name of one of the collection is name of one of the other stories in that series. Right. Desertion's the it's one just, on, on Jupiter. It's the best one, though, <laughs> of the stories. Oh, yeah, I think. Uh, Call Me Joe's the best one. Uh-huh. Basically, there's a, a character who is down. He, they want to explore Jupiter. There's people living on Jupiter or aliens living on Jupiter, but they can't go there because, of course, they're too. Uh, they'd get, be crushed and they're not, you know, they're, they can't go down there. So they grow a being that will be able to survive in that environment. Mm hmm. And uh, they use sort of the avatar gear to put him in there. And then he goes down there and explores it. But I think he ends up 
being stuck there as well he, in the same he, way that he chooses to stay there. Just yeah, like, just like an avatar. Like an avatar, right? So, uh-huh. so is he like in a synthetic body kind of thing? Or? Yeah, 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 yeah. Him and, and his uh, dog. Him and his dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, because he took his dog with him to the station, and he transforms himself and his dog. And I think the last his line, dog too. Yeah, his last line said they would turn me back. The, the dog says they would turn me back into the dog, and the guy says, and they would turn me back into a man. And they decide, mm-hmm. nope, we're not going to do that. We're going to stay on Jupiter. Mm-hmm. Very Avatar-like, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think. Which is also, I mean, it's fun because it's also escaping reality, right? Is like all in this is why I like those, you know, those weird connections between books like uh, Princess of Mars and and the. Uh, you know the Heinlein one, the Glory Road. Yeah, it's like that, it's a way of escaping your reality. That is, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's like you let's go live in this book, right? This is what they yeah. say, right? Have you guys read um, William Gibson's The Peripheral yet? No. no. Ah, that's that's playing with the same thing. Like it, this oh, book reminded me a lot of that, where they're they're using like a synthetic body, um, but in peripheral, they're exploring the future. It's like the ah. the the minds from the past are being put into these synthetics of the future. Sweet. Yeah, and they want to kind of stay there because it's way better than their. <laughs> wait, than wait, 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 wait! So, so minds from the past are brought into bodies of the future. Yeah, the future has somehow they contact the the past and they can tell them how to build. They've got three D printers and tell them how to build this contraption that will bring their minds into their future synthetics. Neat. Yeah. Wow. That kind of reminds me of... Uh, Very science fiction, and he yeah. hasn't done that in a while. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 less uh, near future and more speculative than Gibson's gone lately. That kind of yeah. reminds me of a series of stories that, I think I've mentioned them before, that Silverberg and others wrote back in the late 80s, early 90s about computer simulations of historical characters that are wind up mm-hmm. getting loose and running around basically the internet. Mm-hmm. And they, 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 you have uh, Socrates and Bizarro and Julius Caesar and all these others mucking about. And Socrates is a troll. Oh, Socrates <laughs> tro- in, the fir- in the first story, it's Silverberg's story, Socrates trolls Bizarro ferociously. It's funny. It's very, very funny. It's, it's bizarre. Wants to chop him too, but he can't because they're both electrons, and he's so frustrated. Socrates just twitting him. It's just like it's glorious. Yeah. So yeah, this peripheral. I, I can have to check this out, Marissa. Yeah, it sounds mm-hmm. good. We'll have to talk about that. Well, um, I don't know. Is there anything left to talk about on this one? No, there was one thing I was going to ask you. Did you? Sure. I read in one of these. Um, books about Philip K. Dick, the one written by his, one of his ex-wives, that he got upset where someone was talking about this book um, and saying that, the, the what's the thing's name, Pelig, Keith oh, Pelig, the synthetic, he's got the bomb in him and it's, uh, it's meant to go off when he gets within range of uh, Cartwright, right? Mm-hmm. And apparently it does at some point, but the bomb doesn't go off. Or do you, did you guys catch where that is? Where at some point the pallet comes close enough to detonate, but doesn't. I can't think where it is, but apparently no. he got all—he's all miffed about having that pointed <laughs> out. <laughs> like some. 
Um, what I can tell you is there there is another story, um, and it's very very good one, um, that has an android with a bomb in it. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and it was turned into a terrible movie uh, called Imposter. The story's called Imposter, and the movie's called Imposter. Um, this is a Philip K. Dick. Yeah, yeah. it's Philip K. Dick short story. Um, it was published for uh, some reason in Astounding. I think that's the only time he ever was published in Astounding, which is he's not really an Astounding guy. Um, astounding was very... Although he did have all the... Telepath- telepathy stuff, so maybe he is an astounding guy. In any case, he was only published in Astounding once, which is unusual because a lot of writers were published there. In any case, this is a story about a scientist who uh, is working on a nuclear defense or strategic defense of the planet from aliens who are actually other humans or who want to attack the Earth or something like that because you know they're in a war with the off-worlders. Um, but uh, there's been a forest fire recently near his home, and uh, he, he goes to work, and they arrest him. And they say, you're an alien spy. And he says, no, I, I'm me. I'm just a normal guy. Well, it turns out that that forest fire was caused by uh, uh, alien space, uh alien spaceship crashing with a clone uh, replacement, or not a clone, an android replacement of him. Um, and it went to his house and, you know, had sex with his wife yeah. and then went to work the next day. And um, he, it, we don't know that he's, whether he is a, a robot or not throughout the whole story, but he's like, oh, you're confronting me with these terrible facts. I, I sure hope they aren't true. Wow. <laughs> it's very fun. Very fun story. And the the movie's terrible because they put an hour long action sequence in the middle. It's supposed <laughs> to be a uh, it's supposed to be a one of those very rare triptych films where they take three science fiction stories, uh, you know, like sort of like the Twilight Zone movie where they take three stories and they say, Okay, here's a feature film uh-huh. anthology movie sort of thing. But they just filmed that one and then so it was only like half an hour, forty minutes of story. And so they hired a couple of new actors uh, and one of the main actors to come back and fill in the missing hour that's in the middle. And so when you watch the movie, you, you say, oh, this is inter- interesting premise. And uh, and then there's this hour-long action sequence. And then, oh, right, okay, right. We're back to the actual plot of the story. So it's a lot of running around. In the, but... Uh, if you get the DVD version, they have the short film on there, so there's that. But I would just recommend reading the story. Mm-hmm. More, 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 more odd uh, cycling and recycling of ideas from from Dick. I mean, it's like you almost like I kind of wishing well of all these ideas. He'd have you pull one out, put it in the story, drop it back in. Like, okay, I'll pull yeah. up these two and put the put those in the story and mix them up this time and drop them back in the well and. That's what's well, so fun about this book, like just seeing like all these little seed ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to see again and again as we keep uh-huh. uh, reading and uh, rereading, and in the case of Marissa, reading and listening to Dick. I yeah. look forward to it. Uh, this is the first time I read it. I, I hadn't read it before. No, this I'm... one's new to me, though, too. Oh, okay. It was better so, than I thought it would be. I thought his early stuff would be so terrible, but <laughs> it's really good. Well, it's not, it's not terrible no, at all. It's, apart from, it's just not good. Yeah, it's not great, <laughs> but I, I really enjoyed it. 
Not to mention yeah. what happens to Dick's writing towards the end. I mean, some of the earlier stuff is clearer, if not more polished. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.